He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Joined by the rest of the Munson's. Want to give them a wide berth. He's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. We'll start this week with Case. Well, not a ton on my end, but I am thrilled that Rigby told us about that new Adam McKay show on HBO. I've been watching that and I've really enjoyed it. As I watched it, though, it dawned on me that there's two people that have not worked together that's shocking to me. John C. Riley and Danny McBride. They have never been in a TV show or movie together. That'd be a cool pairing. Yeah, it'd be great. They're both good at, like, the absurd. So you're talking about the Lakers show? Yeah. I thought it was pretty good the first episode. I'm, I'm digging it. Did you see who directed the episode last night? Yeah, Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. But other than that, I think I'm ready to talk about uh, Tyler Perry tonight. Rigby. Yeah, welcome to a very Medea podcast. <laughs> I'm your host, Kyle Hickman. <laughs> yeah, ha- happy to talk a little Tyler Perry tonight. Things are good. March Madness time. Great time to be a sports fan. I did just read that Scott Hall died, the uh, former oh. famous wrestler from the WWF Attitude Era. So actually, that was before Attitude Era, also known as Razor Ramon. So yeah. rest in peace. Yeah. R.I.P. to the bad guy. <laughs> I think he kind of went his separate ways after he retired from the WWF, but yeah, it's too bad. It's like a little bit of my childhood is dying each day. So Me and my buddies used to try to do the razor's edge to each other and paralyze one another when we were like seven all the time. That was a great special move. <laughs> great finishing move. It's honestly shocking that most of us as wrestling fans survived our childhood. Oh yeah, I, I can think of all the swanton bombs I did off of things, like into snow piles. I should have broke my neck so many times doing that. The amount of times that like my brother and I like power bombed each other and like did the pedigree and stuff, like how we didn't break our back or neck is a miracle. James, you're up. Nothing, man. Pumped to uh, share my Tyler Perry experience with you guys. I'm glad we're here and we could all go through this together. That's right. A mutual pain or something like that. I've been remiss up to this point. I haven't really talked about my new role. I started volunteering for the Indie Film Festival. Ooh. screening documentaries, nice. which is pretty fun. I've, I think I've screened like 10 of them by now. I can't really talk about what I've seen, but I've seen some pretty solid ones, and I've seen some things that I don't think humans should ever watch. Wow. It's been, a, it's been fun so far helping out with the film festival here locally, and you guys know I love watching new stuff, so it gives me a, a good purpose for watching new stuff. Speaking of helping us out, our original guest, Jeff Reed, was supposed to be here. He was last with us for the the Tooch episode. He unfortunately couldn't make it for good reasons. He had a got a new job in Australia and you know, he's we we record at night, he records in the mornings and part of the new job brought him to the office and away from the ability to record this week. So, we called into the bullpen and we brought in one of our favorite guests. We we've, we've got Corey Wallace with us. Mm-hmm. She's still a 12-year-old latchkey kid with Beyond Basic Cable in an adult woman's body. She once set her alarm at 3 a.m. to get up and watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, please don't tell her parents. Mad respect. Just so you know, she only dates guys who watch at least 3 movies a week. Loves a good deep dive or think piece, and that's 
that's why we're here and is a fan of this podcast probably because of that. Um, she previously joined us for the Natasha Leone and Aubrey Plaza episodes. The Leone episode is still our most popular with over 700 downloads. I checked it yesterday. Wow. So it is still the king, the queen, the the grand pooba, the synonyms. It is the, the one that most people have listened to. So welcome back, Corey. How are you? The guy I'm dating now listened to the podcast initially when we first started dating and he heard that bio and he was like, I don't think, I don't think this is going to work because I know I haven't seen <laughs> 700 movies, but yeah, life is good. Work is really good. I've missed you guys. And I, I'm pumped to talk about Tyler Perry. I'm, I'm pumped. I am pumped to talk about this person. All right. I'm glad you said that you missed us before that last sentence. Cause now it feels real, you know? Yes. It is real. We had no, no fault of Jeff. We had three days of prep to find a new guest. And so we called the bullpen. New Corey might might bring some fire for this one. And she crushed a bunch of Tyler Perry in the last two days. So we'll see where it goes from here. Happy to have you back. Yeah, for sure. Bless your heart. <laughs> At least you pick somebody that people know. Let's get into some birthdays for March 24th. Rigby, what do we got? All right. First up, we got Jessica Chastain, fellow Munson. You know her from Zero Dark Thirty, the lovely Tree of Life, Molly's Game, The Help. Yeah, she's been, obviously, she's had a really great career in Hollywood. So any guesses on how old Jessica Chastain is turning on March 24th? Don't forget she's on a run right now for the Eyes of Tammy Damn Faye. Man. He is, Eyes of Tammy Faye. She's been winning all of the... The precursors, so it's looking like she's going to win an Oscar. That would be awesome. Yeah, the movie might not have been great, but I thought she was really good in, in that role. Chastain is 42. You're like obsessed with her, Kyle, so if you get this wrong, I'm going to be very, I do. very I do. I do love Chastain. 39. I'm going to go with 39, yeah. 46. So Kyle wins. She's turning 45. So you were close, wow. Craig, but you were one over. Come on. Have you guys realized that almost every week I'm one over? Terrible at the prices, right? What's the rules? I didn't write it. <laughs> I'm with you. It's all right. I'm glad Kyle won that. Always right in the world. All right. Next up, we got Lake Bell. She's been in. Anybody seen In a World? That's a good movie with Lake Bell. What else has she been in? No Escape. How to Make It in America. I think she was in. I think she was Cameron Diaz's friend in What's Hap- What Happens in Vegas. Is that what the movie's called? Yeah, What Happens in Vegas. Also a director now, too. Also a director. You're right. You're right. How old is Lake turning on March 24th? Phenomenal name. Oh, dude, I have no idea. Craig, this is how you play The Price is Right, so I'll let you guys guess, and then I'll go, go with my guess based on no information but your guesses. I'll start us off. Lake Bell is 37. I was going to say 40. Lake Bell is 39. 38. Craig, you get it. She's actually 43, turning 43. <laughs> She's also a very attractive human, too. All right, last but not least, we got Jim Parsons. He's a famous stage actor, but I think most people know him from his, for his role in The Big Bang Theory. I have no idea who we're talking about, so I'm going to throw 40 again. Give me 43. No, man. He was playing like a college kid in... I know. That's what... He's right. playing like a PhD student in, in Big Bang Theory, so it's like <laughs> really messes up the age here. I'll go 40. I'm going to say 45. He was in the Ryan Murphy Hollywood project. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like an alternate timeline of, of old Hollywood. It was pretty good. He was an executive in that, wasn't he? 
Mm-hmm. He played definitely a villain. That was a good performance. All right, Kyle on the dot, 43 for Jim Parsons. Nice. Did you get all three? Nah, I got two. So Kyle gets two of three. I will say all of these actors are in their 40s, but they don't they look like they could still be in their 30s. So they're all aging. They're all aging pretty well. I was gonna say there's a theme there. Mm-hmm. They're, they're all in the same range, age, age range there. Five actors. This is episode 58. And those other four actors that were on the wheel that were not selected were Amanda Peet, Rob Hubel, Kate Winslet, which seemed to be the podcast favorite from the last episode, Robert Loggia. Our, our friend Jeff did not pick his second Italian actor in a row, as James predicted that he might. Great guess. But he did pick Tyler Perry. And Corey decided to join us out of the bullpen for Tyler Perry. Now, looking at his career, usually I give kind of the overview of credits. You know, he only has 46 acting credits, so not a ton. 27 of them are Medea related. So that's uh, more than half are related to Medea. He's got 60 writing credits, 63 producing credits, and 58 directing credits. So of all the performers we've covered, he I think you'll find he is by far the most prolific, not necessarily on the screen, but behind the scenes, creating, producing, and directing pictures. So it's a little bit of a different challenge from what we've covered previously. But before we get into his career and what kind of what led him to where he is today, we always like to start with a little actor trivia, and James will try to stump us Fast and Furious style. First time listening, we're going to do read off three facts here. Two of them are going to be true about Tyler Perry. One of them is not going to be true about Tyler Perry, but will be about one of the many of, uh, cast members of the Fast and Furious franchise. The uh, folks here are going to guess which one. You, uh, Corey, you're a returning vet, so you know this, but you don't have to guess the actor. You're just guessing the fact. But Kyle and Kyle's been having a recurring joke about this poor woman's name, and I just feel for her at this point. But you can just guess which one is not true about Tyler Perry. So fact number one was homeless at one point while a teenager living out of his car and today is now worth just under $400 million. Fact number two was mocked in a Chris Rock movie, which inspired him to produce two movies as a direct result of Chris Rock's single joke. Fact number three is the first African-American to own a major film studio outright. I'm going to say that I think fact number one is the lie, because I actually think that it's about Sam Walker, who's the fourth cousin of Paul Walker. At least I think they're related. Everyone knows Sam had great investments. Yes. Number two is the lie. I could see Tyler Perry being just petty enough to do that. So I think that might might be true. You know, I started this Shea Wiggum run I'm going on, and number three won't apply to him because uh, you said first African-American to own a movie studio. And the last time I checked, Shea Wiggum is a Caucasian male, so that one won't apply. Yes, very white man. If you're wondering who Shea Wiggum is, he plays Michael Stasiak in Fast and Furious and Furious 6. Who could forget? Right. I'm going to go with number one, that he lived and was homeless in his car, and for somehow, some way. My man has made $400 million, I'm guessing, through Bitcoin because it's not through acting. I think two is the lie. I haven't figured out who from the Fast and Furious that would be, so let's go with Jason Statham. Chris Rock noted Jason Statham hater. (laughs) You don't want to get between those two. No. Okay, well, no one picked fact number three. 
uh, that it, he is the first African-American to own a major film studio outright. And that was good on your part. That is true. He actually bought a abandoned army base in Atlanta. It's Fort McPherson mm-hmm. for what his production company is called is Tower Perry Studios. It's like gigantic. When he made the acquisition, it was the largest private purchase of real estate in Atlanta at that time. And it was just north of $17 million. Good grief. Fact number two was mocked in the Chris Rock movie bit, inspired him to make two movies. That is true. So in yep. the Chris Rock movie top five, there's a scene where moviegoers are lining up around the block and all hyped up and they're going to see Boo, a Medea Halloween. In the context of that film, it was absolutely mocking him, 100%. <laughs> uh, but it actually inspired him uh, to make Boo, a Medea Halloween. And uh, it actually had a sequel and those sequels totaled 123 million at the box office, while top five grossed 26 million. So, what ended up as like Chris Rock mocking him, he ended up making 100 million more dollars than Chris Rock off that joke. Can I go back in and reduce my Chris Rock Munson meter score for causing this? <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, fact number one was almost at one point while a teenager living out of his car, now worth just under 400 million. While this, uh, well, this fact's actually about Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who was worth just under $400 million, uh, uh, and was homeless as a teenager. Tyler Perry was also homeless for a short period of time, and he is worth more than the entire cast of Fast and the Furious combined. Yeah. The Fast and Furious cast is worth a total of $837 million, while Perry is worth $1 billion with a B dollars, and is the 15th richest black person on the planet. It is unbelievable how much money this man has. Yes. I, you've used that that rock fact before, haven't you? I feel like we've done yes, Gary. Absolutely. Yes. yes. I should have known that. I knew I was like, Vin Diesel doesn't sound right, but I'm gonna go with that. Damn yeah, it. it was the rock. It pays to put on hours of makeup and wear a dress. Let's that's the life lesson. You can you True. too can become a billionaire. Let's write that all down right now. Mm-hmm. It pays to do drag. R- racially Problematic drag. It pays. <laughs> I'm so excited to discuss this career. <laughs> All right. Good job, James. Appreciate the trivia. Case, I think James teed this up nicely for you. I'm really interested to hear about Tyler Perry's snapshot in box office history. If this man is worth over a billion dollars, I'm going to just go out on a limb and say his movies have made some money. Knowing that Tyler Perry has done amazingly well financially, I was surprised to see where the numbers lined up for him. I was expecting to see catastrophic numbers in box office performance and return on investment. However, I did not. His box office performance, as it relates to world growth, is, is shockingly low. Of the 35 movies that I have listed, only four of them grossed over $100 million worldwide. And none of them were Tyler Perry or Medea movies. They were Star Trek. Gone Girl, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Paw Patrol. Interestingly, though, of all the Tyler Perry or Medea films, only two of them grossed more than $75 million, which was Boo, a Medea Halloween, and Medea Goes to Jail. So that was a lot flatter than I thought it was going to be. Here, however, is where his box office chart gets wild. Of the 35 movies listed, he only has one movie which lost money. And it was Peoples. Mm. And he didn't act in that, but that was he was a major producer in that movie. Of the, all the movies I have listed, none of them lost money. 
looking closer at the numbers, he ranks 45th on average film budget. No surprise there. 31 in total world gross. 23 in star meter. 56th, 5-6 in critic ranking. No surprise. 5th on fan ranking. 17th and 29th on two different box office metrics. So you put all of that together, and he ends up coming in at 20th. Does he do all that without international distribution? Because I think I read somewhere that that's all domestic gross. Yeah. Yep. I mean, he hasn't started international distribution yet, which to me is so, says a lot of things about a lot of things. <laughs> His target audience is so narrowed that it doesn't make any sense for him to go mm-hmm. international. It's, it's very much narrowed down to a certain population and it works. And he is just printing money. Those are good points. 71.8% of his box office gross comes from domestic. His high watermarks for international gross would be Gone Girl at 54.4%. Star Trek at 33%. Alex Cross at 25.7%. So they're not his movies. They're just movies he's, he's acting in. His stuff, it's like 95% or something like that, right? And those are all like famous series like book series or you know kids series Mm -hmm. yeah so his highest tyler perry based international gross okay so nobody's fool was 5.8 percent international acrimony 4.3 percent it's nothing and then the highest medea movie would be chris rock's favorite movie boo a Medea Halloween was 2.67% international world. And that's gross. the highest? Dude, that's not. That's a- <laughs> Those are garbage numbers. That's yeah, like, they put it on military bases. That's yeah, what's exactly. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, You're yeah. right. That's a great point. <laughs> Craig, answer this question. It's what is the average cost to make a Medea film? 10 million, 20? Like, where are we at? Cutting these films in his backyard. Like, like he owns the largest studio. Including the four big budget films that I already listed off. If you include those, he's still only at twenty nine million, which yeah, puts so. him forty fifth on ours. But if if you're going down these Medea movies, five million, six million, ten. He doesn't need to make a hundred million from a movie because he's spending five to ten on a movie and making seventy five. And he's the writer, director, actor, producer. He's getting all those checks. He owns all the rights. His biggest movie in terms of return on investment is Medea's Family Reunion, which was a $6 million budget and at world gross $63 million. That is baffling. He is an evil genius. <laughs> yeah. $6 million for a, multi, for a major release, a major release with marquee talent. So that means that, I mean, a boatload of that money is just setting up people for contractual obligations to do his films. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, like, you get a couple, I mean, Viola Davis, you get a Viola Davis in your movie. Yeah. Angela Bassett and Meet the Browns. He's got uh, Janet Jackson. Yes. Like, yeah, he's getting Janet Jackson. He's getting Cosby kids. Mm-hmm. Yep. Barrage. To play prostitutes. We'll talk about that later. Yep. But, yeah. Wow. He is a business mogul. He's, yeah. Yes. He's, a, he's mastered his brand since then. It's really funny when people ask him, like, why do you put Tyler Perry on everything? He's like, that's my brand. So it goes on everything I do. And, and he mastered it young. 
Like, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he had the vision and was like, yep, now I'm one of the richest people on this planet. Yep. Do you guys know that he, he was said to have financed um, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's security mm-hmm. detail? I'm sorry. Did I ruin that? That's a great no, that was one of the facts I almost used on the trivia, but there's no way I could say it without you being like, is Jason Statham doing that? I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Charlize may be doing it, but that's about it. All right, well, let's dig in. Let's let's get into this career. Good job, Case. We'll see how the number compares to 20th out of 58 when we're all said and done. TBD. If you're here and you're wondering, uh, you could fast forward to the end of the episode if you don't care about any of this. You just want to hear the scores. No, you can it, go there. It's going to be a fascinating conversation, actually. This is a ride. All right, so the early days. His early life is so fascinating. Born Emmett Perry Jr., his dad sounds like the worst human yeah. that may have ever walked the planet, like a huge piece of shit, abused him, abused his mom. He tells a story about how his dad was like basically whipping him across the back with like a cord to, I forget, I think it was a fan or something, just beating the shit out of him with it. Like just a really, really bad upbringing. And that is a reason he changed his name. Um, to distance himself from his father. So not only did he suffer abuse for his dad, sexual abuse as a child, he almost committed suicide two different times. So just the worst type of situation with a father figure. His mom, super close to him, would take him to church. That's where a lot of his spiritual grounding comes from, from his mother. And once you hear this and you, you learn that Medea is built basically off his mom and I believe his aunt, then you understand why he starts to write so many female characters and why so many of his stories are female character centered. Dude, I can't wait to play armchair psychiatrist on some of these portrayals. It's like, (laughs) it's like, I I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm just telling you what I'm seeing here. (laughs) So he changes his name at 16 to Tyler to distance himself from his father. Did not finish high school. Went to high school with Mystical, which I thought was interesting. That would have been a fun little fun fact you could have tossed in there. But he he started to to write and write letters to himself. He was inspired by Oprah, which was a huge influence in his early career. Inspired by Oprah, again, strong female character, strong African-American female that kind of led him into the world of entertainment. That led him to writing his first play, which is, was called I Know I've Been Changed. And heavy Christian themes, heavily family themes, you know, a a big result of his upbringing with his mom and his anti, his dad situation. And he spent six years retooling that puppy between 92 and 98 to try to bring his bring his plays to the people. And that play was based on those letters that he wrote to himself years ago because of being inspired by Oprah. But he hustled. I mean, that's six years of trying to get this thing and get people to show up. What that led to was him getting very involved in what was called the Chitlin Circuit. And I'll toss it up to Corey to talk a little bit about that. So, yeah, the Chitlin Circuit for, for Black folks, and especially the 30s through the 70s, before films started their black exploitation era, it was a place for Black performers, comedians to really find their audiences. And so in the upper Midwest and then in the deep South where there were black folks with money, the Chitlin circuit was a place where you could bring your family and you could see what I like to call moderately spicy entertainment. So if you're familiar with like telenovelas and like how they're structured, how they're framed, how the characters are very like 
all good or all bad, the angel and the villain, the redeeming older abuela or um, other character. There's a breakup and they make up in the rain. And yes, yes I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Um, very straightforward. There's no nuance in any of these plays. That's why I think you see, like, even in his, like, love of soap operas and Black people fronting and leading soap operas, I think it comes from the Chitlin circuit. But anyway... The Chitlin Circuit continues today. The heart of the Chitlin Circuit is definitely in Atlanta, Georgia, where you can see performances that are, and it's normalized to have men in drag. It's normalized to have outsized tropes and stereotypes play a huge role in the arc of redemption for a character. So like all of those things that we see in his films that for... I don't want to say a sophisticated audience, but for an audience that's not raised with that kind of entertainment, might seem really stereotypical, annoying, problematic, whatever. If you're familiar with Chitlin Circuit Entertainment, it to- makes total sense. So you could go to a Chitlin Circuit show with your grandma, you could go with your auntie, you could go with your little cousin who would just turn 12, you know, and could find something for every member of the family. So yeah. When you were describing it, it wasn't insulting to me, but when I watched it, it was insulting to me. No, but I think that's good. I mean, it gives people a good foundation to understand the context of where his plays got big, where they got huge, to the point where I, I read that he was ha- he had 35,000 people per week coming to his plays. That's like, that's rock star numbers. It's insane numbers. Mm-hmm. Crazy numbers. And people go back again and again and again, even if they know how it's going to end. At least with the rock star, you get a different set every night. There is no different set on the Chitlin circuit. It's the same thing for weeks. So he's, he's creating these plays, super popular in the Atlanta area, and he's pulling numbers. And then 2000's Nutty Professor 2, The Clumps, comes around. And so when it comes to if you love Tyler Perry or you hate Tyler Perry and you're listening, you can either thank or blame Eddie Murphy because Eddie Murphy's <laughs> portrayal in Nutty Professor 2, The Clumps, is what inspired Tyler Perry to play Medea, to take on that role. That's in which, when you think about it, we haven't covered anybody up to this point who has, will play multiple characters in one scene, right? We'll play Joe, Brian, and Medea. Eddie Murphy's really the only other one that I could think of that would do that, and, or Martin Lawrence is another one as, as well, For think, if you think about his, you know... Big Mama's House kind of characters. Was it Nutty Professor 2 or yeah. Vampire in Brooklyn that motivated that? It should have been Vampire in Brooklyn, <laughs> but it's not. That didn't motivate anybody other than to stop watching Eddie Murphy movies. That's what it did for a while. First major role is 05, but before that, you know, between Nutty Professor and 05, you've got four Medea straight-to-video projects. So coming off the, the play side, doing straight-to-videos. At, at this point, he is worth $75 million just off the plays. Good grief. The plays and the straight-to-video movies, $75 million. And he takes that money and he uses it to produce his first feature film, which is Diary of a Mad Black Woman in 2005. And that's what we're calling First Major Role. And Rigby, for the second episode in a row, watched a Medea film. So I'm interested to hear his thoughts because he got Meet the Browns last time. The real winner. Yeah, so Medea has a much bigger role in this one than Meet the Browns. Meet the Browns, it was kind of a cameo. Uh, Medea is like a major character in this one. But the story takes place in Atlanta, and it's about a woman named Helen who is, her heart is broken by her successful lawyer husband named Charles. 
basically Charles kicks her out of the house and says, uh, I'm staying with my mistress and you're, you're gone pretty much. So she's devastated, doesn't know where to turn. And she ends up uh, turning to her grandma, Medea, played by Tyler Perry, who also plays two other characters, as Kyle mentioned, Joe, who plays Medea's brother, and Brian, who plays Medea's nephew. Joe's not so much in this as much as Medea and Brian. Brian plays an attorney who later represents Medea in a, in a court case that they get involved in. I, first of all, I didn't really enjoy this. As I texted Kyle, I said, this movie makes Meet the Browns look like Citizen Kane. It was very, it was, it was, it was all over the place. Tyler Perry's character of Medea is so, it's like forced on you to the point where you're just like, this is not, I just didn't find it funny at all. I feel like it takes the, the exaggeration of the movie and just kind of kicks it into overdrive. And you're just like, I just, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. I, was not into this movie at all. The script was so sloppy, like it went so many different directions. And obviously like it has, you know, the famous Tyler Perry themes of like family. We talked about on Meet the Browns, like consequences of like drug use, consequences of breaking the law, consequences of, you know, faith or like having important faith in your life. Even like karma, like just basically like the lady who the karma you're referring to is fucking ridiculous. Right. It is yeah. so ridiculous. It was like four different movies came together at once. And I was like, is this a murder movie I'm about to watch? Like, what is going on here? That's what I mean. This movie, it feels like four movies in one. It is like a romance drama, a religious lifetime movie, like a happy Madison fart joke movie. And then like a touch of a drug dealer shootout murder movie. Mm-hmm. And you're watching it and like... The, the protagonist, Helen, she's like an idiot. She's like an oblivious idiot. Like, every, she's like, oh, I can't believe I'm going back to my abusive husband. And she just like forgets everything that had happened. And in the opening scene, it's, he's like, yeah, I've been dating someone for a while. You and I haven't been together in years. And she's like, I still love that man. It's like, why? He's clearly moved on. Like, he's clearly out of the picture. Yeah, he, she gets home and all of her stuff's in like a U-Haul van, and she like still hasn't figured out that. She like, can't comprehend. Uh, He's like, I have kids with this woman. Like, we're moving in together. Mm-hmm. Those four different movies like didn't connect in a way that you want it to. How this movie spawned all the Medea sequels after it, I will never understand. If I if I was scaling it on four stars, I would give it like one and a half, maybe even one. Um, and a big, big part of that is I just, Medea, I just found her character to be very annoying. See, I thought Medea was the best part of this movie because I did not care for the story itself. I thought it was rubbish for the most part, but mm-hmm. language, her character, <laughs> it's rubbish. But the, the, the character of Medea, you get, like, I think this is important if this is the first Medea film to kind of call out, like, some of the threads of the Medea character that you see the rest of the way. So she's got warrants, lots of warrants. Mm-hmm. She is not. Peter Fender. She's got a red. Turn to the judge very close. She's not a friend of the law. She's always packing. So in this movie, she makes sure you know she's got firearms. And she's not afraid to let that thing ring either. She no. fires that bad boy all the time. She busted out a chainsaw and chopped up his freaking couch at the one point, which comes back in a much later Medea film, which I thought was a nice callback. And she lets you know that she used to be a prostitute and work them streets, too. So, like, you get an early introduction. I will say I thought it's over the top, but you start to, like, I enjoy her more than the melodramatic stories in most cases, but that just might be me. 
So melodramatic. That's a great word for it. Roger Ebert's review actually said, there's a great movie here buried underneath a bad one. That's so, it's like, it's like, where is this going? You know, like, and like James said, when it's four different plots, it's like really hard to keep up and really hard to stay interested in it. So I wish Tyler Perry as like a writer or a creator would have the courage to just go ahead and make a sequel to Waiting to Exhale. Because that's <laughs> what he's trying for. And right. he just doesn't have the balls. That's a good point. And the thing about it is, is he's, he's, it's obvious, he's watched all those films. He's watched a lot of black satire. He's watched a lot of Boomerang. He's watched a lot of, you know, those 90s films that were really, really popular and made a lot of money. And he's a fan of those kinds of movies. It's obvious. But he just can't pick a lane. And this first outing it, and all the subsequent movies after it are a sign that he just doesn't have the courage to do the kind of work or to write the kind of work that I think he really loves. And that's what's so frustrating for me as somebody who really gets like, I love black satire and I firmly believe like there's this concept in the black community of like our people's things like are like black folk stuff and this is considered like black folk stuff and it's just not high quality it's like larry the cable guy mm-hmm. without the social commentary i was going to make that comparison 100 percent. in a later medea film we'll get to that great wait a minute so there's more than one medea film oh yeah hate to break it to you but <laughs> oh shoot what i will say about him as an actor I think he's pretty good playing the lawyer himself. I think it's the more natural. I, yeah. yeah, I think yeah, he did a I pretty agree. good job. And and you'll see that you'll see that later in like Gone yeah. Girl and stuff like that. Like he's he was mm-hmm. he was the best part of the movie, I thought. But Medea just offset that completely. To, he me. is an endearing dad character as Brian in the later Medea films. It's probably his best acting work of the three because the other two are just absurdist characters. That's what they're designed to be. And, you know what I mean? It's a trend you'll see where the guy the you know, antagonist to start a Tyler Perry movie is just piece of shit dude, and he's the worst of the worst. But in this one, he makes it pretty clear that they're not a couple anymore. And she's like, still love that man. It's like, really? Because it looks like he's well moved past you. Like he loaded all of your stuff into a U-Haul. There's a new woman in there and her closet of stuff is there. <laughs> It's like he has kids with her already. Like, I think he pulls out. First feature film, he lets you know what he thinks about terrible men right away. Oh, yeah. Right? And so that that theme and a strong, powerful female character is it's what he's going for. So when you think about it, too, we're only talking 17 years of films with Tyler Perry, which is even more bonkers when you think of how much money he's made, that it's only a 17-year run of movies themselves. Obviously, his, his plays go back to the 90s. After the first Medea film, we have Medea's Family Reunion in 2006, which I believe was the first movie of a larger partnership with Lionsgate, which produced the rest of the Medea films up until the most recent one came out this year. So it so builds that, that relationship, and then that's the uh, distributor. I want to say it was like another like 80 to $90 million contract for a certain amount of movies where it's like, hey, I made $75 million off of my play circuit, and now I'm like two movies in. And here's an additional 80 million contract, not counting like what I'm going to make from actually producing the movie, just a contract so that Lionsgate gets their cut. Like he is making major moves. His first two movies combined budget is 11.5 million combined gross, 114 million. He writes everything himself. So it's not a large staff. 
And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we made 80 million bucks. Nice. But think about it. Like if you're his representation, you are rolling in dough too, because he's got a producer's guild credit. He's got the writer's guild credit. Mm. He's got, I mean, he is just stacking, stacking, stacking gross and, and percentage. If he's producing the movie, he's pulling the biggest percentage out of anyone. Oh yeah. I mean, I, yep. I would love to read his contracts. Like I would love to read his deals. <laughs> Just as a writer nerd, I'm like, let me read through this. Because he said that the reason he he wrote is because early on he couldn't afford a writer. So he did the writing, he did the directing of his plays, and then he just figured out how to train his brain to where he could do all of those things. He's literally lifted people, he's Mm -hmm. lifted whole communities out of generational poverty. Mm -hmm. Genuinely. Yeah, that's hard to do. The amount of money he's made. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Giving it back. So in 2006, he also wrote his first book. So the book was called Don't Make a Black Woman Take Off Her Earrings, Medea's Uninhibited Commentaries on Love and Life. You forgot to put Tyler Perry in there. Pumps out the book in 06. Really long title. Uh, But again, raking in that cash, building that brand. And that next step to building that brand was to take his name, put it on the show House of Pain, where he played Medea. And for six years played the recurring character, a show that he signed a 100-episode deal with TBS that earned him $200 million, which is just insanity. Dude, this is like four years in, and we're at like 100%. half a billion. <laughs> like, that's, that's how popular the first two Medea franchises were. It was a huge hit. Yeah. Huge hit in the community. It's a money-making operation. It's as, as sure of a bet as anything else in entertainment at this moment yeah uh, from start to finish which that consistency is remarkable let's let's ponder that for a minute to say that something produced by a black man written for black audiences is a sure bet in hollywood insane Mm -hmm. think about that like to say that something produced by a black man out of a black studio with black actors who with very few exception we're never going to see them in other in other projects so that's pretty powerful to be like, oh, no, it's a sure bet. It's it's going to make money. It's going to make lots of money. And it's going to make like 10 times gross out of the expense on the film. Like, that's unheard of. Like, that's like Vince McMahon money. Yeah, that's a great comparison. That's what I find it so fascinating is because Hollywood was not about it. He was doing these contracts on his own. And that's why he's printing this money. It's like. Lionsgate essentially was like, we'll take a small percentage just because it seems like you're doing well. During the the House of Pain run, he produced, put out Why Did I Get Married? Which there's a second one that comes later. There's a sequel. Starring Janet Jackson. So Daddy's Little Girls, he directed, wrote, and produced that one in 2007. With Why Did I Get Married? I started to see the trend that I would see for the remainder of his movies, which is like... The women are, they got hearts of gold, but they are just huge pushovers. And it's like submissive uh, to their terrible, shitty, shitty husbands. And these guys are awful, but it's more of like a neglectful awful. Some are truly awful. And then it, and it's like, oh, and then they learn to love each other again. And it's just like, you see it in so many movies. Daddy's Little Girls, I remember watching it when I was, I think, I, I don't know, when did it come out? Like, I want to say. 07. Oh seven stars Gabrielle Union and Idris mm-hmm. Ilba before he was anything, before anybody knew anything about him. There's this element in all of Tyler Perry's movies of like black glamour. Okay, so work with me here. You have a lot of really like attractive black women and black men with good hair, 
great clothes. And by when I say good hair, I mean straight, long, done. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't have those, like, black, uh, middle class, upper middle class, like, attractiveness features, you are a criminal, a thug, a prostitute. <laughs> I mean, and the thing about Tyler Perry is he knows who the hot black properties are of the moment. Like, not to dehumanize any of these performers, but Shamar Moore, bankable star in the black community. Derek Luke is another good one. Mm -hmm. Like, he ends up casting Derek Luke. He cast Idris Ilba. He casts these, like, properties of people that in that little niche pocket, people go crazy for them. I mean, he he casts Cosby kids, you know? And he is a very smart man. He's a very mm-hmm. smart man. He knows his audience very, very well. And he's not disconnected from them. He's not abandoned his audience. I got to give it to them. But it, it's just kind of interesting to me that he picks these, like, really attractive black folks who are on the come up to star in his films. Oh, wait, we hit Meet the Browns, which we talked about on the Angela Bassett episode, which spawned into a television show because of David Mann's characters, Brown, who tends to be a big the rest of the way in the Medea franchise. 2008, Tyler Perry's The Family That Prays, a movie that had Cole Hauser, who we had mentioned a few episodes back in the Fast and Furious trivia world. Again, black women love Cole Hauser. He is like a Chris <laughs> Evans. Yes. What is he the movie is with Evans. Cole Hauser? I mean, Cole Hauser is kind of mysterious and sexy. I get it. I understand. Cole Hauser will rip you to shreds. Yeah, no, he's true. He, he always plays like kind of like uh, he's edgy. You know, when did like, Too Fast, oh, Too Furious come oh, out? He's a, he's a low key thug. Yes. Yeah, Good and he's like super, super rich, like generationally wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> he just comes across like yeah. a tough yeah. guy. Too Fast, Too Furious came out in 03, so that was like one of his big moments. So that's a few years after that. And that movie had Alfre Woodard, Kathy Bates, Sanat Lathan, Taraji P. Henson. I mean, loaded cast to your point, Corey, of just like picking great stars in this story that is about backstabbing each other. Essentially. Do they read the script or are they doing this because of the relationships? Cause honestly, like think about it. These are garbage scripts. Yes. It's 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 because they're written by one man who refuses to hire any other writers. You know, usually there's a writing team. And You're talking about Terrence Malick, right? It's like, hey, is this a good idea? And you go, no, it's not. And I go, cool, I'll work on something else. But with him, it's just these are all good ideas. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna write whatever I want. And I saw interviews where these actresses, like I remember seeing the one with Gabrielle Union and Tragedy B. Henson, and they're talking about they like working with him. Because he speaks to an audience that they don't see in Hollywood. Yep, that's why they like working with him. I wish that he would evolve then, because they have a point. I mean, that's an absolute missed audience for sure. But come on, that doesn't mean that it can't be. We set the bar higher. High quality, yeah. Come on, right? Yeah, the family that prays is available all over the place. Whatever streaming services you're looking for. 2009, Tyler Perry's "I Could Do Bad All by Myself" with Taraji P. Henson, and looking at that, just looking at the stills and watching some clips. To your point, Corey, about like the look of black females, the hundred percent lines up with what I saw with the characters in that movie. Um, and then I thought what was interesting in 2009 as well, but after Precious went to Sundance, won a bunch of awards at Sundance and eventually won a couple Oscars. He and Oprah were the two big money distributors that pushed Precious to larger audiences, which I thought was interesting. That's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that. Monique uh, is awesome in that movie. Uh-huh. Fantastic. They both tried to get Monique to do international press for that film. 
And there's a famous interview where she's like, I won't do it. And Tyler called her up and said, this is going to change your life. Like, this is going to this is going to catapult you into international stardom. And she basically said, I want to be at home with my babies. I don't want to do this, which I think is a controversial choice. It's not the choice I would. Good for her. Right? I mean, yeah. I mean, honestly, it takes a lot of courage to stand up to Tyler Perry and Oprah, arguably the two biggest black like creatives in moguls the, yeah in the yes world ever. so <laughs> not yeah. even arguably i mean yeah I, lo- I looked it up and he's 15th richest black person on the planet and i think oprah is slightly ahead of him it's like you're talking about massive influence kyle he's an executive producer on this film and then that same year this is kind of his first foray into acting outside of the tyler perry universe he He's a big Star Trek fan, big Star Trek nerd, and he played Admiral Barnett in 2009 Star Trek, a movie we mentioned in the Chris Hemsworth episode. This was um, the first time I had seen him in a role where, like at the time when the movie came out, where I went, wow, I, I was so ready to hate him based on my preconceived notion of the Medea movies, and I thought he was pretty good in the slight role he had here. I thought he did a good job. Caught me way off guard. I like this Star Trek movie. He picked a good one. Yeah, nothing like hooking up yourself to a J.J. Uh, Abrams project. He, the, the, the times he has strayed, Fincher, Abrams, he's, he's picked some pretty big directors. Uh, but that takes us to Largest Audience Gap, which is 2009's Tyler Perry's Medea Goes to Jail. And Corey, as our guest Munson's going to step in and talk a little bit about this one. Just like with any other film, I think with, with most telenovelas or most films like this, there's an A plot and a B plot and maybe a C plot, and maybe a D plot. He likes to do all four. He doesn't shy away from multiple storylines. So we've got after high speed car chase, Medea winds up behind bars because her quick temper gets the best of her. Meanwhile, assistant DA Josh Hardaway, played by Derek Luke, another attractive black man, lands a case that's too personal to handle, that of a young prostitute and former drug addict named Candace or Candy played by Keisha Knight-Pulliam. When Candace winds up in jail, Medea takes the young woman under her protective wing. Fun people that are in this film, Viola Davis is in this movie as a street preacher, street evangelist for young women who are currently in the life on the streets. Sofia Vergara is in this film. She plays a a rough-and-tumble criminal named Titi. Murdered a lot of men. A lot of men. And again, like you see a lot of black stereotypes in this film. Like I did not enjoy this movie, but I will tell you that there were a couple of key characters or key actors that I think took their parts pretty seriously and made it a little watchable. One is the DA, Derek Luke. I like Derek Luke. I think he's a star on the rise. I think he needs to get better projects and... I think he could potentially be a really big star. He just needs to be really selective. This is a spicy take. I enjoyed seeing Keisha Knight-Polium as the young prostitute. It took me a little bit to like wrap my mind around it. I Again, I had to kind of choke it down at the beginning. But I, it, she, I ultimately warmed up to her characterization and was... I was rooting for her. I liked her character. I will say this is this is a good time to talk about the fact that Medea films are not afraid to go dark. So you think you're walking into like slapstick comedy. You think you're walking into like stereotypes, lighthearted tropes. You think you're walking into like 
the clumps, you know, her, people clapping and doing Hercules at the dining table. Like, that's what you think you're sitting looking at or watching. But they go really dark in some of these movies. And some of the things that the characters have experienced, I think, are reflective of his past and just darkness that he's seen in his life. And the way that he tries to, like, mix them in with these, like, sight gags sometimes is really hard to sit through. Totally agree with your point there that it it catches you so off guard when you see the extreme level that a certain scene will go to. And when I mentioned earlier playing armchair psychiatrist, that's what I was like thinking. It's, oh, this seems like a story someone who's gone through a terrible upbringing would write. And it's like, it is so cartoonishly over the top that you're like, what is going on here? The weird thing about the characterization of especially black women is he has no problem putting black females through the ringer. (laughs) I mean, we're talking about he made a Cosby kid a victim of a gang rape. In this <laughs> that I've is what her in the life. Only the black community is willing to sit through that, right? Like if we, if mm-hmm. he were to promote this to a white audience, they it just wouldn't work. But I think because of his, he already has so much social currency and film creative currency with his niche audience that they will go with him on these kooky, yeah fantastic triggering layered rides that are sometimes don't make any sense. I mean, did we need to make her a gang rape victim? Really? No, <laughs> no, you really didn't. The biggest problem with this movie is there's not enough of Medea in jail. Cause I think it's a really fun concept to see her be like, I beat a bitch's ass like in jail. Like you see a little gigantic. bit of it and there's just not nearly enough of that. It's more about the subplots as Corey talked about. So, Corey, where do you fall on the audience gap? It's 96% for audiences, 29 for critics. Where are you at? Who are they polling? <laughs> There's 52 <laughs> reviews on the critic side and 25,000 plus on the audience side. People before the movie. Again, like, this is just a sign. He knows something we don't. Yes. He knows something we do not know. We have not figured out. 25,000 plus and 96%. It's bananas. There's just moments where I go, my people, my people. And I just think about like, these are my, these are my people, right? These are my people. My people are this audience. And I, I, I literally, when I was preparing for this, I was like, okay, I'm a black woman going on a podcast talking about a black creative. Like I need to do it responsibly. But this man, this man will try my patience. This man has tried me. This man is going to be the downfall of my credibility in the black community. This is it. This is it for me. This is where I draw the line. This is where I say enough is enough. No more. No. So I, I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give you a 30, 30%. Oh, led right on, right on with the critics. 29%. Boom. It's bad. If you want to see a black exploitation film or you want to see black comedy, there are plenty of other options that are not this. Don't waste your time. Oh, you heard it here first, people. Well, thanks for picking that one up and going going to jail with us, with Medea. If you notice the colorism in his films, I happen to be, and I know if you're listening to this and you do not know me, you can't tell this, but I am a light-skinned black female. I don't have, like, I don't have dark darker skin, right? All of the women that look like me in his films are attorneys who are really mean and really cruel and dress really well 
but are bitches. <laughs> bitches. And they're here to take your black men Nailed and it. take them away from women who really need their help and assistance. But this movie follows that to a T. There's a white attorney. She's like, why do you care so much about this prostitute? You need to get over this. She's from the ghetto. Those people from the streets, they're not like us. It's horrifying. So yes, long way round to the barn. Mm-hmm. You are totally right. <laughs> Accurate. The other part about them being wildly distributed is they're not contested. There's very little pushback for Tyler Perry projects. No, never. You're you're not going to find critique like this is why I'm going to lose my black card. <laughs> you're not going to find critique like this on the internet. Like, you're risking it. You're risking the biscuit gonna, here. Someone's going to find this and it's going to be like on my Wikipedia page when a strange girl from Kansas City gets canceled. When Kyle and I, we met up to go to the NFL Combine the other week. And I mentioned, I was like, hey, uh, I saw this TikTok and it was this guy's like every Tyler Perry movie ever. And I described the plot to Kyle and Kyle goes, that's exactly what happened in Diary of Mad Black Woman. And it's like, there's the very career focused, but loveless man. Uh, He's a dark skinned black man and he cheats on his wife who has a heart of gold, but is so maybe too submissive to him. And then she meets a light-skinned black man who doesn't make anywhere near the amount of money, but he loves her for her. And Kyle's like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. I was like, dude, it happens in all the movies. That is the plot to Diary of a Mad Black Woman, to a T. Okay, let's keep it, let's keep her going. Five years until the next review, we've got Tyler Perry's Why Did I Get Married to, the one we mentioned earlier with Janet. We've got For Colored Girls, he director and screenwriter in 2010. In terms of like the black cultural diaspora, For Colored Girls is a play that is beloved, much, much beloved. And in the black community, it's very, very well known. It's extremely popular. I would say it's like up there with like the color purple in the black community. So the fact that he took that on is a, is a good thing. Yeah. Yep. We've got Medea's Big Happy Family in 2011. And the, the big piece here in 2011 as well is, according to Forbes, becomes the highest paid man in entertainment. So hitting that echelon, and that's when he also signs his contract with the Oprah Winfrey Network. So doing doing huge things in the entertainment world. Popular in the 80s, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever happened to her? News reporter. <laughs> I think she was a weather lady or something. Yeah. I mean, you can you can see where Tyler Perry learned his own everything outright mentality. Oprah was the first to do that. She's got magazine, TV show, broadcast network. And he's like, yeah, you know what? I think I'll do the same. And Nailed yeah. it. 2012, he's Tyler Perry's Good Deeds, plays Wesley, a movie with Gabrielle Union. So another Gabrielle Union connection. And then we've got Medea's Witness Protection in 2012, a movie with Denise Richards and Eugene Levy. And I will say this is probably the Medea film that I hated the least of all the ones I watched. Eugene Levy plays a, a new CFO who is very naive and his boss basically throws him under the bus in a huge financial meltdown. And so they have to take him and his wife. His wife is Denise Richards in the movie, which is the most unrealistic shit of all time. <laughs> but them and their two kids get put into witness protection. Brian is their lawyer with Medea. And so that's the dynamic. What is this fascination with prostitutes? Yeah, exactly. My guess is it's a religious thing. I think he read Mary Madeline's story and was like, I can make 
12 movies off of this character. Okay. Okay. Like the redeemable prostitute. Right. It's like they both um, came from it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Alex Cross, 2012, plays Dr. Cross. I think Jameson mentioned it was a series of books, a movie that is, it's in Detroit, even though I don't believe the books were based in Detroit, but the, the film is in Detroit. And it's like one big Cadillac ad. There, I don't know if you watch it. There's like <laughs> yeah. a huge still of just staring at the front of the caddy. And then there's listening to a song at one point that's talking about Cadillac. I was like, how much money did Cadillac pay, the, pay this group for this movie? It was like watching like a CBS like fifth installment of you know ncis or csi yeah but for a whole movie yeah it, it, it was boring and it's not a boring character it's it's a you know like a famous detective and it was just one of those things like i don't really care well and you can drive an escalade through those plot holes let me tell you what <laughs> <laughs> like they were trying really hard to like loop all the characters together and failing miserably he didn't write this one so we've got no. to that and i think he thought this is going to be my springboard into a franchise yeah he thought wrong he miscalculated yeah that got canceled because they did announce they were going to do a sequel and then they saw how terribly it went the box office they're like yeah we're not that's that's not a money well spent that was a great chrysler analogy by the way they using the escalade i like that that was very good thanks that's why you guys are paying me the big bucks (laughs) (laughs) this is his second poorest film in the box office with a 35 million dollar budget it world grossed $35 million, so it broke even. That's bad. It's not good enough to get a sequel. No, it is bad. For a famous books and storyline, yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Who the Larry the Cable Guy mentioned earlier, he is in Tyler Perry's A Medea Christmas in 2013. And that might be some of the more problematic scenes I've seen in any Tyler Perry movie. Like, Larry the Cable Guy is a racist piece of shit in this movie. And all Medea does is basically borderline condone it. Like, there's not any, like, addressing him saying really troublesome and problematic stuff. It's just, like, she basically threatens him with with violence at one point. And that's about it. What's the point he's trying to make here about dealing with racist white people? What's the point? No, it's he's not making a point what he's doing is he's appealing to the larry the cable guy audience yeah (laughs) and he he's like i could get both fan bases to watch this movie the racist hillbilly white guy will come out and watch this movie and be like yeah larry tell medea how we all feel it's just fucking awful well this reminds me of that black jeopardy skit with Tom Hanks, that where one was fun. The, the category is, <laughs> yeah. they I say this movie that. doesn't deserve an Oscar. What is <laughs> Tyler Perry's boo on Medea Halloween? <laughs> yes. and when that man puts on a moo moo, I get transported. But the difference between that skit, which is brilliant, that's one of oh, the best things yeah, SNL has done in years, is what they do is they isolate the humanity of people, right? So you're expecting like the tension to build and then you start to feel uncomfortable. With that skit, it gets relieved because you start to realize, like, everybody believes, like, all working class folks believe that, like, there's trackers in the water and, like, that <laughs> gets you, you know? Yep. Those are warm, funny yes. things that don't humiliate anyone. I think, like, Medea Christmas is just one big, long humiliation. Like, I have no desire to see any people humiliated for an hour and 45 minutes. And that's essentially what you're signing up for with this movie. Hated it. Can't say enough bad things about it. Horrible. So yeah, Medea Christmas, avoid it. That would be my personal suggestion. But a few non-acting things here. 
he he was a writer for Better for Worse from 2013 to 2014. Love Thy Neighbor for four years, 2013 to 2016. And I'm talking when I say writer, I mean writing lots of episodes, lots of them. This isn't just like one or two episodes. This is these are big chunks. So a lot of writing, and then the Single Moms Club. He played TK in 2014, another movie with lots of actresses. I like the Single Moms Club. It's a light watch. If you are a woman watching this film, it's on par with like a Lifetime movie. Like it's not going to change your life, but it's cute, and you're rooting for people, and it's got a nice cast. He clearly shelled out big bucks. I got to tell you that when Tyler Perry plays like. A low-key, which, by the way, we still haven't discussed his sexuality, which is completely okay. But when he plays your non-threatening, you have no idea where he sits on, like, the romance spectrum. He He's likable. I agree. Like, in this film, I'd watch him, and if he just did that, if he just played those roles, yep. he'd be fine. He goes out on a limb with the stance he takes in Homecoming. Okay, highest critic score, 2014. We've got Gone Girl. Case. Yeah, it sounds like I won the lottery here. This was a terrific movie. The movie was directed by the David Fincher and written by Gillian Flynn. So right off the bat, you know you're set up for high potential with a great director and a great storyteller and screenwriter. The movie has a small but effective cast highlighted by Ben Affleck, Roseman Pike, Neil Patrick Harris, and our boy Tyler Perry. As for the movie, it's a 2014 psychological thriller that follows the disappearance of Amy Dunn, played by Pike, brilliantly, by the way, who is the wife of Nick Dunn, played by Ben Affleck, played like Affleck, by the way. Amy suddenly disappears, and, and they begin looking for her. As they're looking for her, cleverly left clues and suspicious circumstances begin pointing the finger at Ben Affleck's character and having some sort of wrongdoing in her disappearance. But the movie does a masterful job of weaving together this struggling marriage concept and a whodunit murder story while also maintaining great pacing. And it was a really good rewatch because the first time I saw it, I was really taken for a ride. And this time around, it was kind of like a roller coaster. You know where it's going, but it's fun to go for the ride there. Anyway, back to the star of our podcast tonight, Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry plays Tanner Bolt, who is a high-profile lawyer who Nick retains in order to help fight against his pending murder charges because the quote-unquote crime was committed in Missouri. If a missing person stays missing long enough, then it's considered a murder, and Missouri has the death penalty. His job gets increasingly difficult as the evidence and public opinion begin to pile up against his client. I thought he was really good in this. They pulled up to uh, Ben Affleck's house and all the media's there and they get out of the car and, and Affleck and the gal playing his sister, they basically run into the house. And Tyler Perry, being the high profile, media savvy lawyer, just strolls. And right when he gets to the door, he just, with his back to the crowd, just waves at everybody. And I thought that was a really, really subtle but skilled portrayal of that character. However, I say that and I thought the female characters and actors stole this movie. Roseman Pike, her performance was unbelievable. Kim Dickens played the detective. She did a great job. And I even thought it was a, it was a smaller role, but I thought C. Pyle, who played the TV show host, like Nancy Grace, she was enraging. I could not stand her. And like James pointed out a few podcasts ago, 
if somebody can bring you to that point where you dislike them personally, they're doing a pretty good job as, as an actress. So overall, I love this movie. I thought he was good in it. If you haven't seen the film, catch it next time it's on. And if you have seen it, it's definitely worth a rewatch. I, I like Gone Girl, too. I think it loses a little steam like halfway through. But the first, so the first like hour is awesome. Mm-hmm. And his performance is great. Tyler Perry was great. It's good. And I haven't read the book. And I wish I would have before I saw the movie. But like you said, the the, the female characters dominate this movie. Dominate. Especially Rosamund Pike. I mean, she's yeah. start to finish. She's amazing. She narrates it crushes it carrie coon's the sister carrie coon is great yeah. in this movie as well yeah you know tyler perry you got to give him some credit here i buy him as like a legit especially like a lawyer like i buy him in there yeah 100%. even more than brian in in the medea movies like i buy him and and i wish he would do more stuff like this instead of reverting back to the medea stuff but yeah i like that he played the character like a like a slimy lawyer like the type of lawyer this guy would need where he's like oh i see the fucking you're both psychopaths yeah i can navigate this yes absolutely and i thought he did a good job at that he plays like a kind of a no-nonsense guy really well yeah which is what he needed ben affleck's character in this mm-hmm. i'm with you craig i thought his performance was great i wonder how his team sold him on this gig like that's a good question tyler perry Medea, you know, Holler is going to come into your venture film and is going to do well. He's going to ride alongside these heavy hitter like scene chewers, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, whoever sold him on this gig and got him in the room to be cast is a mastermind. Yeah. And Kyle made a good point about how he, when he does take on these roles, it's always with great directors. It's J.J. Abrams. Mm-hmm. It's Adam McKay in Vice. It's David Fincher. It helps when you have a billion dollars, you're connected, but like the guy's doing something right, you know? So. And I saw the thing that he, he talked about what he learns from other directors. The thing he learned from Fincher in this movie was to use different lenses for shots. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I, I learned that. I stole that from him because yes. the interviewer was like, so what do you normally do? I use the same lens for every shot. What? Yeah. This is why you need to hire more people in your company, dude. Yes. You need a DP. This is why. <laughs> Are you joking? No. 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 He openly admitted that in a 2021 Variety interview. See, yet again, we're like vacillating between... This guy is a genius. I want to take this guy to the garbage dump. Like, I can't. I can't. <laughs> His technical prowess is not what has brought him here. His ability to write certain characters that communities relate with. No. That's why he's made the money he's made. Yeah. And he can get away with just doing everything himself. Yeah. Tommy Wiseau style. Just doing what he wants. His vulnerability in that just made his uh, Munson score go up for me. I like that. I respect that. Oh, yeah. He- that's nice. Corey mentioned how he gives a lot of uh, opportunity to actors who would not get this mainstream opportunity if it wasn't for him. And that is absolutely commendable. On the adverse side of that is he does not do that for black writers, black production, black producers, uh, you know, yes. black cameramen. It, it's all him. Mm. And it's like, dude, you could hire other people. There's other things to do with the movie. Someone might come in and make your movie better. He's like, no, nah, why would I do that? I, I got all that figured out. I mean, he puts his name on literally everything. So can you be that shocked that he would want all creative control over everything he does? So that's highest critic score, Gone Girl. Not a bad highest critic score to have, for sure, living in the Fincher world. Yeah. A couple of years before our next our next review, we've got Medea's Tough Love, the first time Medea went animated. It's available on Tubi at the time of recording. If you want to check it out, it's like 40 minutes long. Super short. 2015 is when he buys Fort McPherson, starts to build Tyler Perry Studios, starts to build his empire there. 
And then 2016, we see the first Boo Medea Halloween, a movie I noticed if you're a YouTube fan from the early 2010s, and you'll know Dom Mazzetti. Mike Renafrini, I don't know his last name, but Dom Mazzetti. No, it's Mazzetti. He plays one of the frat guys in the movie, which I thought was really fun. You would think Boo and Medea Halloween would be about Halloween, but it's really not. It's mostly a prank movie with a fraternity. And it's a father-daughter story with Brian and his daughter. Well, it was based off of Chris Rock mocking him. And he went, that actually is a good idea. Yeah. And here we are. Another foray away from the Tyler Perry stuff to play Dr. Baxter in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows, a movie we talked about in the Laura Linney episode. He plays an MIT nerd. I think he nails the MIT nerd in this movie. I think he does pretty well in this. Continuing the trend of being enjoyable in roles that aren't written by him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a it's a turtles movie, so you go in with certain expectations. Lord Lenny, I mean, she's she's the truth, doing her her job, but he's a he's pretty convincing as a nerd. Like throughout the whole movie, the whole movie is contingent on him buying that they're going to give him some kind of favor, and then Shredder screws him over at the end of the movie. Surprise, spoiler! If you've never seen it, so basically, what we're discovering is his frugalness of not having anybody else write, of not having anybody else direct has limited him drastically as a performer. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh. It's just hard to con- convince him to not write the things because he keeps printing money. And so yeah. no matter every critic saying it's the worst thing they've ever seen, he's like, this $100 million I just made isn't the worst thing I've ever seen. Like, everyone else seems to like it. Well, now it's literally his factory. It's like Willy Wonka, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Who's going to tell Willy Wonka this chocolate bar sucks? <laughs> It's his. It's his show. It's his. It's his company. It's his sets. It's his mm-hmm. everything. And so, I mean, again, I wonder who's on his team. I think it says something to us that, like, you can't. We have no idea who's on his team. Like, we know who other people's producing partners are. Yeah. And other than Oprah, we have no idea. So one of the people that he is friends with from a production standpoint is Jeff Probst of Survivor. And and they like would talk to each other about like think while watching each other's stuff on how to improve like a movie or how to improve Survivor. And because they're both successful making these very niche shows, they're like good buddies. And so Tyler Perry with Survivor around this time is like, yeah, I was watching and I just texted Jeff and I was like, it's noticeable when everyone loses so much weight that they get brand new bathing suits and it just kind of takes you out. It's like, where's this person who's been starving for two, three weeks, get this brand new bathing suit. So you should just buy multiple bathing suits and have them age. It's more realistic. Like what the, if you, if you text that to a friend and be like, dude, leave me alone. Yeah. Like, like, let me do my job. But Jeff Probst was, he's like, you know what? Tyler Murray's right. That's he's smart. like, it's, yeah. it's a good move. And he's like, I adopted it. He's like, it's a great mm-hmm. idea. I think there's something there though. Like, mm-hmm. He surrounds himself with people that are in the business. He supports people that are in the business. He coaches people that are in the business. And um, maybe if you're a a strong black man in Hollywood who's made a gagillion dollars, like that's the role you decide to play because it gives you a sense of control over your life. He didn't have that as a child. Negative. So maybe he's riding his way into feeling control. Mm -hmm. I'm finding one person it looks like he has done a massive amount of work with. He's got 28 credits that he's produced with Mark Swinton. Do we know who that is? Six credits who he has written 
with Mark Swinton. I do not recognize him at all. That might be his most consistent partner. Yep. Interesting. It should be said that Mark Swinton is a black man. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, yeah. Good to call it out. Probably assumed, but good to call out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Last couple ones here. Brain on Fire, a movie we talked about on the Chloe Grace Moretz episode. He plays Richard, her boss, who is a little bit of a tyrant in the movie, and she's dealing the whole concept of the story. She's dealing with a debilitating brain disease, doesn't know it, and she's a journalist, and he plays her boss, and he's not the nicest person in the world in the movie. Not a great movie, but again, very similar to playing a little bit of an authority character, not too different from some of the other ones we've talked about, still stepping outside of his his universe. And then he wrote his second book, Hires Waiting, in 2017. So, back on the author train. And that gets us to 2017's lowest critic score, which I struck some version of gold, I guess, this time, with Boo 2, A Medea Halloween. So, of course, I watched the first one to get a lay of the land to better understand the characters. There was going to be some overlap, and by golly, there was, let me tell y'all. So, this movie's got a 4% on Rotten Tomatoes from the critics, 40% from fans. So not great, even from the Tyler Perry fans. Mm-hmm. So this is like, this is a big deal, universally maligned. It's got a lot of the same routine elements, Medea referencing her prostitution and stripping past, Joe's weed habit and pimping days, Brian being a terrible dad, <laughs> uh, not understanding his daughter, and Bam and Hattie saying really inappropriate things, most of the most of their scenes. So the usual suspects are are here. His daughter, Brian's daughter, was 17 in the first one, and the whole concept of this one, in the first movie, she's 17, she goes to the fraternity party, and that's a huge problem when they find out she's 17, right, and they have to shut it down because they're worried about, you know, getting closed, you know, for all of us Greek folks in the world, you know, they don't want underage people at their parties. Well, now she's 18, and it's time for a do-over, right, so she's, despite dad's saying don't do such things. She wants to go hang out with the fraternity guys once again. But the fraternity, because of the issue they had in, in the last movie, they can't have parties, right? They got the sanctions from the from the top down, from those tyrants up there at the top down and from the university. So they can't, can't do parties. Nationals. But they, the fraternity figures out a loophole. They're going to plan a party at a haunted campground called Lake Derrick. Tito Ortiz plays a fellow dad in this movie. It's irresponsible. It's an extremely irresponsible cast because he's not an actor, nor is he. It's bad. This is bad. And he plays a major role in this one. In the first one, Tyga plays a performance in Boo, a, Hallow- a Medea Halloween. He's the musical act who is in the movie. In this one, it's Ray Schmurder who plays at the party that they're having out at the campground. They're having a pretty good party. I would go to this party 100%. I would have 100% went to this party. It looked like a lot of fun. The killers in this movie are two ring-looking girls, and they have two guys with gas masks and chainsaws. I'm just going to fast-forward for you and let you know that it is another prank movie. There's not actually killers for the most part. It is Brian and Tito Ortiz dressing up and hiring these women to pretend to be, like, undead women. And they pull a prank on them, and I can understand why everyone hated it, because it's awful. It's a terrible movie. It's probably the worst Medea film I saw, and for good reason, it's lowest critic score. Again, this would have been saved by a writer's room. So bad. It just would have been saved by not being greenlit. That's that's the way you save it. Keep it on the chopping board. Damn you, Chris Rock, you asshole. 
Why'd you have to do this? Do you think we have any grounds for a lawsuit against Chris Rock? I have a grounds for a lawsuit in the fact that I had to pay to watch that movie because it's not free anywhere. Okay. I paid $4 to watch it on Prime. That might be a way for us to get some social media traction. Let's do a public campaign that we want Chris Rock to reimburse you for your rental. A class action. You too might be a victim. Have you watched the Dia Halloween? We ask you to call 1-800. You might be entitled to financial compensation. That's right. <laughs> hey, Chris Rock would get a kick out of that. <sighs> All right, a couple things before our largest critic app. It's just some like writing and screenwriting producing credits. Acrimony, 2018. Nobody's Fool, a movie we mentioned earlier, director, screenwriter, producer. And The Pains, a writer on that in 2018. So a lot more writing. A lot more producing, a lot more directing. And that takes us to largest critic app, which is Vice. And James has it. So Tyler Perry in Vice is only there for a uh, minor role. Uh, and I'll get to my review of that. But this is largest critic app. And it's important to know that for largest critic app, that means that the critics like it better than the audience. And the reason why I had to cover this, even though Tyler Perry is only in it for a few minutes, is because Tyler Perry legitimately has no other movies in his career no. where the critics like it more than the audience. And so in this case, it, uh, the critics like it a 65% and the audience likes it a 60%. So that is the only movie in his entire career where that is the case. The smallest critic app we've ever covered. Yeah, 5%. Very tiny, very tiny. Everyone seems to be pretty locked in. Mm -hmm. So Vice is a movie by Adam McKay, covers Dick Cheney. Governor George Bush uh, is played by fellow Munson, uh, Sam Rockwell. And he picks Dick Cheney, the CEO of Halliburton, played by Christian Bale, who uh, both of them are great in their roles, uh, to be his Republican running mate in 2000 presidential election. And it covers, in an Adam McKay way, um, you know, where it's trying to be sexy and trying to be funny, but also get a message across and be serious. Pretty much how Dick Cheney came to power and how he was openly running the show behind George Bush's, I mean, kind of in front of George Bush's face. What I think this movie suffers from is kind of being a, it's, a, it's already a dry topic. Politics are inherently dry, but it's a dry topic about a boring yet fascinating person. And so it's where it worked with the big short. He was able to make that entertaining and sexy with this. It was there's so much historical information that has to be shared that like there's some points where I felt like it was it was dragging. Right. It, it was a fascinating thing that I wasn't fully entertained by. But none of that has anything to do with the acting. I think Bale is Dick Cheney, Amy Adams as Lynn Cheney, Rockwell as Bush, Steve Carell as Donald Rumsfeld. All of them, I thought, nailed their roles. But included in that list. Tyler Perry as Colin Powell was fantastic. It was like he's only in it for a little bit, but he nails his impression of Colin Powell. I was I was really impressed. I think the makeup they did on him was great. I think he looked like him. He had his mannerisms. So much like him. Yeah, his tone of voice. It was it was really impressive. And pretty much he's only in it for the scene in which Colin Powell was mentioning how uh, Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And he gives that speech, but he did an amazing job in it. And so I will give him credit there. It's just, I'm an Adam McKay fan, and I, I wasn't a huge fan of this movie. I'm with you. Vice, I had really high expectations for, and only because I love The Big Short and was coming into it from that. I'm like, dude, The Big Short was so good. Like, I hope this, and mm -hmm. I love politics, so I'm always fascinated by it, and I just wasn't really into it. Adam McKay, I like his gimmicks, but like the whole end credits in the middle of the movie. You thing, didn't like that? No, that was no, hilarious. That bothered me. 
I think this movie suffered from just bad bad luck and timing because like I think I mentioned to you guys earlier like the the movie portrays this sort of madman monster like who's willing to do anything to take power meanwhile like Trump is in the White House when the movie comes out and like yeah I think it would have had a greater effect if someone like Trump wasn't president when it came out I agree with that. That's smart. I think that's totally true. I will tell you that Vice, the interesting thing about Adam McKay casting Tyler Perry in this is, I think I, I you had to ask yourself, why did you pick this man? He's a big man, just like General Powell was. Mm-hmm. He has a large face, a broad face. He is a, a very, like, he can mold his face into doing different things, obviously. Mm-hmm. But there are other black men he could have cast, and I genuinely think it's because Adam McKay, I want to believe, gets what Tyler Perry is doing and sees that he could do, he's a good actor. Probably Gone Girl, honestly. Yeah, for sure. Gone Girl was huge, Fincher. I mean, it showed that he can handle a, a straight, dramatic role like that, so. Yes. Great point. It's a phenomenal point. I liked it better than the first time I watched it, but I still, to your guys' point, I wouldn't put it on the same level. I just appreciated him being like, we're going to try to tell this guy's story, but he's one of the most secretive people ever. And I think it's the troll job of doing the end credits halfway through just to see people's faces in the theater when they don't know what's going on. That's funny to me. There's a Vulture article where they say Colin Powell gave his blessing to Tyler Perry to play him in Vice. Mm -hmm. Wow. All right, well, let's round this thing out. 2019 to modern day, where we're at now, between 2019 and 2021, Tyler Perry wrote for 11 shows and a lot of episodes. So my man, that pen or that type, that keyboard was busy the last three years. This man has been writing a lot. There's too many to name. We're not going to go through them, but there's a lot of shows. There, a lot of them are streaming. You can you can catch them wherever you want to check out his stuff. A Medea Family Funeral in 2019, which I believe is technically when he retired the character. Technically. Technically. He brought it out of retirement for Homecoming. But for Homecoming. Yep. Technically, I believe that's when he retired the character. <laughs> and then you have Tyler Perry's The Fall from Grace in 2020, which is so cheesy. There's such an absurd twist to it where they've got girls like tied up in the basement of their house. It's... It's not good. It's got a 16% from critics, so critics hated it. It's like 50% from the the audiences, but man, it's bad. So don't go watch that. Ringing endorsement from me, as you can tell. Black AF did one episode of that in 2020. And then that same year, he was named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People and also got a Governor's Award from the Primetime Emmys. So we haven't talked about really any pr- like premier awards bodies up to this point. It's 2020, right? We're 15 years into his film career. No Emmys, no Grammys, no Oscars, no SAG, no Critics' Choice, no Golden Globes, none of them. So he gets a Governor's Award from the Primetime Emmys, which from what I understand, you all can tell me otherwise, it's more of like a, it's almost like a lifetime achievement thing, I believe. It is. It's a catch-all award. It's a, you didn't do anything worthy of an award, but we'll give you something because you've impacted the world of entertainment. It, It makes sense because... This, the next year at the Academy, he got the Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award from the Academy. So again, never was in anything. Gone Girl would have probably been the closest thing to an award-worthy movie, but got the Humanitarian Award because of all the great things he had been doing with all the money he made, right? And giving back to the, his communities. 
couple other films we'll mention. Those Who Wish Me Dead, it's on HBO Max. He plays the assassin's boss. Now, in a decent film with Angelina Jolie, John Bernthal, like a firefighter movie. Super small role. Yeah, it's a, it's a small role, like first half of the movie. That's decent. It's an okay film. That's a box office victim of COVID. Mm-hmm. Yep. But a good one. Yeah, it is. If you want, if you want some decent entertainment to check out, Paw Patrol, the movie goes to the animated side. I didn't not know that it made that as much money as it did, but I guess that makes sense because kids and parents love in Paw Patrol. But he plays a character named Gus in that. And then, <laughs> don't look up plays Jack, one of the uh, news anchors, alongside Kate Blanchett, and that's a hilarious role. I thought he was great in this. I do too. This is gonna sound weird, but he plays an asexual character in everything else. This was the first time that I ever saw him, like, express sec- any type of sexuality, any type of desire, any type of chemistry with uh, any person, a human. And it was, I-, I thought it was fairly convincing. Same. I, th- I think him and Kate Blanchett had great chemistry as, like, the, what is it? It's like the Michael and Kelly morning show, but these people are, like, the sassier, drunker ones later at night. Like, it was yes. the world's <laughs> ending and they don't give a shit. They're talking about, like, Ariana Grande. Agreed. Yeah. And they're both really, you'd never think they'd mesh like that, but he can clearly stand up to a highly characterized, very, like, clearly produced character on Kate Blanchett's side, and he was kind of her straight man. Mm-hmm. It worked. I thought it was mm-hmm. really likable and then a big one for him in 2022 most recently he was inducted into the black music and entertainment walk of fame getting some of that awards recognition for the community that he's served for decades mm-hmm. big deal and then he maybe tarnishes his legacy <laughs> tyler perry's Matia homecoming james do you want to tell the world what you tweeted out after you watch this movie remember if you're listening this was james's first Medea film he didn't start with Diary of a Mad Black Woman, like most of us, he went to the most recent one, backfilled. I just watched Hashtag Medea Homecoming on Netflix, and I think I'm insulted. I don't know what I expected, but the movie says some problematic shit, all during a love triangle plot that makes zero sense at all. Tyler Perry needs to be stopped. He can't keep getting away with it. And that was my first interaction with a Tyler Perry movie. It was Dude, this movie like starts and immediately you're like, oh shit, all right, it's gonna be super over the top. But then it gets like really problematic with like multiple storylines. It's like he he makes clear statements about the Black Lives Matter movement, and the only person who's pro Black Lives Matter in the entire movie is Joe, the idiot pothead creepy old man. And so, like, while everyone is saying clearly well-defined thoughts while they're anti the Black Lives Matter movement, the only response is Joe, who's like, where's the weed? I'm like, (laughs) dude, I'm upset watching this movie. I was like, I'm genuinely upset watching this movie. Then Then there's, like, there's a queer gay character, and he's with his boyfriend, and he comes out to his family. And Tyler Perry goes on a a monologue about how, you know, it doesn't matter to Christians if you're gay because we love everyone and we love you. And you could tell it was something he thought in his heart, but it immediately then moves on. And the story is completely flipped to which the guy who just came out, it's like dismissed that he's gay. But his boyfriend is actually fucking his mom. and. 
immediately you're like they took they took a dump on the entire storyline like what is happening i left that movie being actually upset i was like i i have no idea what i expected but i know i did not expect that to be my first tyler perry experience so they're driving in the car at the beginning of this film the 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 son who's coming home from college getting ready to graduate valedictorian and his friend in quotes right. i'm making roommate, quotes right? with my fingers his another roommate. breathtakingly attractive man oh <laughs> like skin black man yeah. half half white moms from ireland dad's from yeah. somewhere cool he raised in the netherlands i mean he's basically ted lasso the show's cast in <laughs> one person so they go home and you're expecting them to come out as a couple they're clearly like intimately close with one another and then you're right he like flips on it it's like oh you're you're fucking your son's best friend are you in love with him yes he loves me he wants to marry me but he the biggest barrier the highest stakes in this film about a gay black man coming out to his family is that the other guy guy who you ostensibly thought was gay wants to move back to ireland to run a farm (laughs) they mention this damn farm like 10 times and i'm like is this the highest stakes we've got so james i'm asking you to clarify as another person who clearly sat through this garbage film (laughs) were there other stakes that i missed or are is that it wasn't it also like your the boyfriend who's also banging the mom like picks a fight with his stepfather that's how it accelerates to we learn about it yeah the deadbeat dad. That's yeah. The, that's the deadbeat. Yeah. yeah. Should have left her in retirement, please. We didn't mention that uh, someone gets set on fire in the first five minutes of the movie, like a full-on. Brown. This man's gonna need skin grafts. He might not ever walk again. A blaze fire, and he's like, "Fine." In the next scene, they just pat him out, and his clothes are a little charred. This man is pouring gasoline on <laughs> yeah. on his grill. I mean, I for the audience, just not to overstate. He is literally on fire for probably minute. I would say a good strong two minutes of this film. Yeah. He's running around the yard for two minutes and like the whole side gag is she gets like a teacup filled with water. Again, that's a little too dark. You really don't care about <laughs> Joe that much. Well, that was Brown. That oh, was that's right. that was David Mann. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and that takes us to to top performances. Rigby, what do you got for us? All right, so this was a little unique because obviously half of his movies come from playing one character, so you can probably guess what his most memorable roles will be. So I found a list from E! News from 2020, and it is just his best roles, what they call, and it's not ranked numerically, just a list of his nine most memorable film roles. I will give you a hint. They combine the Medea movies, so we'll, we'll get that one out of the way real quick. <laughs> okay, so the other eight movies that he did that weren't Medea, that's, <laughs> that's what we're going for. Correct. Is Joe one of the roles? No, it's not. It's, they, <laughs> yeah, they count. No. Joe, they Brian, just, and Medea are all in the they same. They just say Medea, yeah. yeah. Yep, okay. Uh, Gone Girl, obviously. Yep. Don't Look Up. Don't Look Up is not on here. I, I think it's probably because it's from 2020. That's right. Yeah. I think it would most likely be on here. Colin Powell. Yeah. Yeah, Vice. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Baxter from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yep. Did Brain on Fire make it? Nope. 
I didn't think so. Please tell me Alex Cross is not on there. Did Alex Cross make it? It is, Kyle. Alex Cross is on here. Memorable because it's shitty. I mean, he's got some stuff we talked about where he's not playing Medea and is yep. playing other exactly. characters. So, like, exactly. Single Moms Club? Yep, that's on here. Good old TK. Good Deeds, maybe? Good Deeds, yep. So, I think we're just missing... Why did I get married? Bingo, James. Nice job. Nice. James, what character does he play? He, wait, no. <laughs> he plays the... He's really focused on his career, and him and his wife haven't been intimate in years, and he doesn't think it's a problem. He's like a doctor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, he's a pediatrician. That's what it is. Here's Star Trek. Star Trek. That's it, Kyle. Nice job. There's your nine movies right there. Okay. What do we think his top three are? I mean, I think Tanner Bolt. Well, he's, he's amazing in Don't Look Up. I love that character that he plays. I feel like it's Gone Girl. I also agree. Gone Girl, Medea, and... Don't look up. Yeah. He's great in, as Colin Powell, though, but he it is. is only for, like, five, ten minutes. I mean, he's, he's good in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, too. I mean, maybe it's the Single Moms Club. I mean, that might creep up into there. You can all, if you're listening, you can draw your own conclusions on that one. Let's get into Munson Meter. We rate every actor on a scale of 0 to 100 based on a variety of factors. Those factors could include anything from longevity, their project choice, pop culture impact, their range as an actor, their woods footprint, any other talents they might have, personal life, comedic chops, box office success, or lack thereof, and anything else that matters to us. And I think this one is going to be particularly interesting slash challenging because so much of his work is off the screen. So this time we will start with Rigby. Yeah, this one's probably the most challenging one we've ever done. Mm -hmm. I think he's obviously immensely talented, immensely influential. The thing I like about him is that you can tell he's doing this for like a higher purpose. He's not just doing this just to make money. He's doing this to, like Corey said, he's and everybody else, he's doing this to make people's lives better. So I really respect him for that. The Medea stuff just doesn't work for me. I get that it works for seemingly just about everybody else. So he loses points with me there. But there's something to be said about a guy who's worth that much money and is first or second most influential African-American behind Oprah Winfrey. I mean, that's like, that's Oprah Winfrey is a household name and Tyler Perry is too, so. Yeah, it's a rare air. Yeah, and so I think pop culture impact, he gets probably the biggest, I would say probably the highest score of anyone we've done, which is saying something because we've covered a hell of a lot of good, good uh, actors and actresses. So, but I think... It's kind of the J-Lo thing. It's like J-Lo is obviously a huge pop culture icon, but I just didn't really like her talent as an actor. So all that being said, I'm going to give him a 75. He's definitely the most prolific director we've covered. We've covered other folks who have directed, but nowhere to his level. Some things I like that I think are important to note, having covered someone who routinely plays multiple characters in movies and directing himself doing those characters, and he's not doing scenes to where, you know, you've got two people in the same scene on the same screen and doing a lot of editing to make it work. You're filming from three different perspectives with all the other supporting characters in those scenes. That can That's exhausting, having to do that versus putting in a stand-in and then changing them in post. There's not a lot of that going on. It's just straight shooting of the characters. So I don't know if I respect that or not, but it's just part of the craft. Um, I appreciate that he does write female-centered stories. Most of his films and most stuff he's written are female centered, which is great because you don't normally see that a ton. I just wish 
his portrayals weren't as problematic as they are sometimes. But I'll give him credit. He writes for a very specific audience. He knows them and he does. He's done incredibly well in that audience. His pop culture impact is through the roof. His longevity is tough to judge because he's really only been doing films for 17 years, but he was grinding it out on the theater side for so much longer than that. But out of the spotlight of entertainment and pop culture and Hollywood. So it's hard to judge that, really, when you look at longevity. And although he hasn't won many awards, he has gotten big awards for Lifetime Achievement that recognize his impact. So to Rigby's point, he's a really tough person to score. So I, I'm going to come in a little bit lower than Rigby. I'm going to give him a 70. And we'll throw it to Corey, our guest, Munson. This is tough. I mean, it is rare air. I think that's a great way to describe like what he's done. And he has created a legacy where he's the first and the only of a lot of things, right? He's also like multi-line performer. I mean, Directors Guild, Writers Guild, you know, Screen Actors Guild, like he's banking credits right and left. He's doing it with his own money, his own financing. His distribution partner is basically like giving him carte blanche for right or for wrong. Lionsgate looks like, yeah, we'll dump out whatever you want to put out there, man. Like, we'll see you in six months. <laughs> and that's real power. That's real power in Hollywood. What we're here, what I think we're here to talk about, though, is acting. And part of me is like, Medea is a wash because it's just so much of the same. So I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and look at his other work. And his other work, if if you're thinking about, like, outside of the Medea landscape, it's pretty good. He's leveraged his relationships to get cast in some things that have a strong production value, have really big directors attached to them, have strong supporting cast people, and he holds his own. Like, he never once fell on his face, right? If he does so, if he plays a clown, it's on his terms. And that's admirable. I don't know how, I mean, we could talk all day about what that actually does for the black community. If we make ourselves into a minstrel show, is it any better than if white people do it? I don't know. The jury's still out on that one. So, because of all those things, and just the sheer volume of will and effort it takes to get through his filmography, I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him a 72. I'll split the difference between the first two ratings. Case. He's undoubtedly one of the most successful entertainers that we've looked at. There's no debating that. You know, he's built a huge and loyal following. And that's, that's one, it's not easy to do. And then two, it's not easy to keep them. The point I brought up earlier is the next point I had about it's unfortunate that the, the roles that he's not writing and that he's not directing are the roles that not only we found are the best, they're what other people think are his best roles as well. And that's really unfortunate because I'd like to see him in there. And I think he's got a ton of acting ability. I don't think he uses it. I applaud his business acumen, but I do have a hard time rating him really high when it comes to acting. This sums it up. I looked up what the Black Music and Entertainment Walk of Fame was about, and it lists why everybody's put on there. And his category was mainstream mogul, not actor. And I think that is as accurate as we get. He is a mainstream mogul. And I, when I'm comparing him to other actors, it's just tough to give him a high score. So with that, I'm going to give him a 63. James, round us out. So on the positive end, 
I can't hate on someone who's made that much money just doing what is true to themselves. It is impressive no matter how you cut it. I was pissed off about Larry, the cable guy, making that much money, but it worked, right? And Tyler, Tyler Perry, more power to you. You're one of like the 2,000 richest people on earth. Other things I'll say is I like him in other roles where he's not the person who wrote, directed, or produced the movie. I like him with you know, other writers and other directors. I think he's been really good at adapting to these side characters. He is super philanthropic, and I respect that. He's made a ton of money, but he has no problem helping out in a pinch, and that is not something that you could say about everyone that we cover. So I, I applaud that. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, like, I am going to give him a terribly low score. I, you know, he is a reinforcement of like every morality bullshit that I disagreed with at like Sunday school, where it was like, you know, great men are going to make mistakes. You know, women just they should just submit to their husbands. You know, uh, successful women need to suppress all of their ambition and just smooth out their assertiveness, you know, just be, be loyal to a shitty person. And you watch it and you're like, this hasn't aged well. When did this come out? And like, Oh, two months ago. Like, oh my God. Someone actually believed enough to write this as the storyline. This is terrible. <laughs> He's made 20 films. All of them are repetitive. The character development doesn't exist. And I, I think I figured it out. I think Medea is essentially drag for Christians that like, it's a it, just with a, a spoonful of sugar to help you know help it be more digestible. It is cartoonish, and I think at first uh, he was genuinely putting his soul into his writing, even though you know it was a couple different storylines. You could tell he has something he wants to say, but now it is just like it is unbearable. I can't believe that it is still happening. Someone on Twitter said something funny, made me laugh. Uh, they said the Medea wig must speak to Tyler Perry like the Green Goblin mask. Uh, that that shit killed me, but I'm gonna give him a 54. I think he is uh, truly terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. All right. Well, with that, that is gonna give Tyler Perry a 66.8, which puts him in 40th, sandwiched between Lena Headey and Dennis Haysbert. What do we think? Haysbert will forever make me laugh because of the outlying score he received. <laughs> Is it fair? I think it's fair, absolutely. Oh, yeah. For, for Tyler Perry, absolutely. I think you guys were being very polite. James, what does he have coming soon? So he has written and uh, produced and directed a movie coming out, which it looks like he has done what he's, you know, uh, I applaud him for doing, in which he has hired kind of no-name actors, given them a shot. It's called the uh, A Jazz Man's Blues, and it seems like it's kind of like a murder mystery, Ooh. which is already post-production, so it's supposed to come out this year, but there's no date on when it will be released. All right, so five actors that we're going to throw into the wheel for the next episode, which will land April 7th. Our featured guest is Jay Ledbetter of In Session Film. He was previously with us for the Holly Hunter episode. Those five actors are Rachel Griffiths, Dan Hadaya, Jamie Foxx, Vanessa Redgrave, and Rose Byrne. What do we like? What do we dislike from that list? I'd love to do Dan. Dan, is it Hadaya? Hadaya? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'd love to do him just so we could talk about yes. Commando. <laughs> oh, that's right. Commando. He's also... He's the dad in Clueless. I don't know who Rachel Griffiths is. I don't know who Dan Hadaya is. The name Vanessa Redgrave sounds familiar, but I could be confusing it with someone else. I can't picture what she looks like. Rachel Griffiths is the wife in The Rookie with Dennis Quaid. 
Yeah, she was in Six Feet Under. She was like one of the main characters in that show. Who was she in Six Feet Under? Australian. <laughs> Married to uh, what was like? What's the guy's name? I'm having like a brain fart tonight. Was she the uh, like the mortician? No, she was in Blow, Muriel's Wedding. Those are our main four IMDb credits. If you, yeah, if you search Rachel Griffith, you'll you'll recognize her. Okay, she does look familiar, but again, yeah, not 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 inspiring me. Uh, I would love to cover Jamie Foxx. I would love to cover Rose Byrne. Yeah. Vanessa Redgrave is a very good actress. She's a very good actress. I know the, I, I know the name. I mean, but I, like, in terms of critically acclaimed movies, like, I don't think we're probably ever going to cover somebody as good as Vanessa Redgrave because she's been in so many good movies from, like, the 60s and 70s and the 50s. So, like, I know the name, but I, I can't picture her. 150 credits deep in. Yeah, she started acting in 58. Yeah, James, the reason why is because she didn't care about, she doesn't care about being a star. She wants to act in good projects. Her and her sister Lynn are both, they, they, they're, they're cerebral. They care about projects. They don't care about being stars, but they're both good. She's very good. Well, then you guys have sold me. She's in Deep Impact, the first Mission Impossible. She's done a lot of different stuff. Which is the best Mission Impossible, I will say. <laughs> uh, that's just not true. Rose Byrne would be hilarious. I agree, James. There would be lots of laughs to be had. Oh, she's, yeah. With Rose. Any reason to watch Neighbors is fine by me. Mm-hmm. She's unbelievable in Bridesmaids. Has she had a dramatic role before? Rose Byrne? Yeah, I feel like she has. We're just like... Yeah. Yeah, wasn't she in that Chris O'Dowd movie? That's Bridesmaids. She plays a bitch, and she's so funny. <laughs> I thought it was the movie with... Juliet Naked. Ethan Hawk or the music... Yeah. Juliet Naked, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and she plays... She's in the internship. I watched that at a hotel like last week. She plays the like the Google exec, and that's a pretty straight dramatic role. And she's never, I mean, yeah, yeah, she'd be fun. What What do you think, Corey? If you had to pick one, if we were going to pick you up off the streets to tackle one of these with three days, I mean, it's a it's a toss up between Rose Byrne, who just has done some really unique stuff, and she's a risk taker, and Lynn Redgrave. But Dan Adaya is one of the best like character actors walking the earth. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have a good episode no matter who comes up on the wheel. Is he still alive? Dan Hedaya? Hedaya? Did he recently die? I was thinking, is he dead? No, no he's, he's no. alive. He's alive. He's alive. I don't think he yeah, died. He's, alive. Yeah. he's 81 years old, y'all. Oh, damn. Oh, also a great, a great movie is Blood Simple. The Coen Brothers, the Coen Brothers first movie with Dan Hedaya. Yep. Awesome. Yep. Yeah. The best dad in Clueless when she oh, comes so down good. the stairs. What's that? So good. It's a dress. It looks like underwear. <laughs> <laughs> He's awesome in that. The best. I was like, I remember I saw Clueless when I was like five, and I was like scared shitless of him. I would just be excited to rewatch A Night at the Roxbury. Yes, Richard Grieco, you see right through me. Of course, that all fucking day. I love that movie. Am I the only person old enough to appreciate Cheers? I watched the first like three seasons on Netflix and then kind of fell out of it, but it's, it's great. I mean, that's, so I watched it in real time with my dad on Wednesday nights after they got a divorce. That's how old I am. So that means a lot to you then. I have to sure. laugh at divorce. Yeah, Dan Hedaya played Rhea Perlman's ex-husband and they were still in love. He's awesome. That's where I discovered him. Nice. All right. So here's a question. Jay did Holly Hunter last time. Who's he picking? I think he's picking Rose. Redgrave. Jamie Fox. Okay. Well, we'll see. He doesn't decide. I don't decide. Corey doesn't decide. The wheel decides, and we'll see what happens. Corey, you came in in the clutch. I mean, I don't yeah. know. Give her a round. Give her a yeah, round. Yeah, I'll give you a round of applause on this. Absolutely Thank phenomenal. 
Thank you, Corey. You know how we do at the end of this. It's it's your chance to shine. Any words of wisdom for our audience projects you're working on? I mean, in my non-movie watching life, I work at an incredible place that resettles refugees. And like in the last four months, we've resettled 355 Afghan refugees. Wow. In wow. Kansas City. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, life is so good right now. And I have enjoyed this so much. Like, y'all, anytime you need me, I will power down some films in 36 hours. Just give me 36. If I, I can do it in 36. I was literally, I came home from work early today to like make sure I'd watch some stuff. Yeah, thanks for <laughs> helping us out. This was great. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to make a joke about uh, refugees having to watch. The first thing they do when they get to America is watch a Medea movie. But I'll say that <laughs> Welcome to America. <laughs> our culture now. We're going to, they get to watch Medea and then a Fast and Furious movie. So they understand <laughs> all aspects of family when they come in, right? It wouldn't be far off. Let's be real. No. I think that's a pretty good. Yeah. That's great news, Corey, that you've, that you've resettled that many yeah, people, though. That's, that's awesome. Neat. Well, as we wrap things up, you can find us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can catch us on Instagram on the IG, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Tyler Perry? Here's another emotion for you. It's pleasure. The pleasure I want to get when I watch your soul come oozing out of your body, you maggot. Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we? How can I be on a dating app? When I be looking at me, they'd be like, that's Tyler Perry. What do you do? How do you do that? <laughs>